There's nothing that compares to your promises to us, and for that we worship you and give you our praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Now, I understand to some people they they took the words of Jesus literally when Jesus said, "You are the salt of the earth." <laughs> But let's not forget, we are also the light of the world. And when it's rainy and gloomy, we are supposed to shine for Jesus Christ. Would you say amen to that? So we're continuing our series on the book of Samuel. We are now in chapter 5. Do you believe that? The book of Samuel was originally one book, but then because it was too long, they have to divide the book of Samuel into two. And if you're reading the book of Samuel, I'd, I'd say it book of Samuel, not books of Samuel. If you're reading that, it's a long story. You might get lost as to what's the point of the story. Now, the whole theme of the book of Samuel is to show that only Yahweh is king. If there's anything about the book Samuel, it's that Yahweh, the name of the God in the Old Testament, is king. He is exclusively and without equal the king. To the ancients, the stories are their social media. Now, presently, our social media is maybe some of you do Facebook. Uh, some do TikTok, some do Instagram. Uh, anyone doing MySpace? <laughs> that's that's old. Uh, but the ancients use stories as their social media. That's how they learn new things or new events. That's how they understand things happening around them. Stories shape their understanding of what God is doing to them. So, in particular. When the Israelites hear stories, they see themselves as participants in the story. When they read Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and when they read the promises of God and the covenant and the curses and the blessings and the promises, they see themselves as recipients of those things because they see themselves as characters in the story, recipients of the promises of God in the story. So when we read the stories today. We should be reading also the stories as participants in the story. We should be able to find a character in the story that we can relate to, so that the promises and the covenant and the blessings may also apply to us in some way. When we read stories, what we are particularly looking for are the perspectives, the insights, what God is telling us in the story. When we read the story, we should read the story as if the stories were written for us, as if God was writing to us. The goal of my preaching today is not to bore you with non-relevant details of stories, but to create an opportunity, um, a space where you can encounter God. The whole idea of our worship service is not to inform us, but to create an encounter with God. We're supposed to encounter God. You're supposed to be sitting there, and I'm supposed to be speaking here, where God will speak to both of us through His Word. So let's pick up from the story last week. Last week it was very interesting. We talked about chapter four. What happened last week was that Israelites went to battle. They don't have the blessing of God because they've been doing what they've been doing for a long time. The Book of Judges said 
everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. They don't have the blessings of God. And they went to war. Bad recipe for disaster. So they went to war. They lost. 4,000 people died. So they went back and said, let's do something. We have to do something about it. So they decided to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefront. What they're trying to do is to pressure God into making them win the battle. It's like putting God on the spot. It's like saying, God, you have no other choice but to make us win the battle or else your reputation is on the line. And so they brought the Ark of the Covenant in the battle. And so there was a huge battle at that time. We know the ending of the story. 30,000 people died. Now, the Bible used the word slaughtered because it was not really a fair battle. 30,000 soldiers died in that. Not only that, the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant died. They, they were murdered. Not only that, the messenger went back to Israel, told the good the news, not the good news, told the news about the death of 30,000 and the death of the priests. And when the high priest Eli heard the news, he fell back backwards, hit his head, died instantly. This is devastating. On top of it all, the Ark of the Covenant was captured. The very throne of God that symbolizes the presence of God was captured by the Philistines. So much so that it devastated the whole nation. To the point that um, one of the daughter-in-law, daughters-in-law of Eli was giving birth at that time. And when she was about to give birth, she heard the news about the death of Eli the high priest, about the death of her husband, and about the capture of the Ark of the Covenant. So she named her son Ikavod. Ikavod means, where is the glory? What happened to the glory of God? Or, the glory of God has departed from Israel. It became the ending of this battle. So when people talk about the battle, when people hear about the battle, all they hear and remember is Ikavod. There's no more glory. Where is the glory? The glory of God has departed because they lost the Ark of the Covenant. Israel, by bringing the Ark of the Covenant to the battle, they meant to pressure God, to put God on the spot, but it did not work for them. And on that, God taught them a huge lesson. lesson. And this is the lesson. You don't mess with God because God is not a means to an end like the idols around them. What they're trying to do really is to treat God the way idols during, in their vicinities were treated at that time. You cannot use God as a means to an end. God is not a sugar daddy. Would you say amen to that? You don't just go to God because you need something. And when you don't need something, you go somewhere else and you enjoy your life. God cannot be treated like that. Some people apparently treat God, and Israelites at this point were treating God like a sugar daddy. God wants to be honored in a real relationship because a personal and real God. So the Philistines captured the ark. This is very interesting. Chapter 5 focuses on the scene in the Philistines' camp. So the ark was captured. This was a shocking news to all the Philistines because to them, it was so easy to capture the ark of the covenant. Now, the Philistines in chapter 4 were pressured when they heard that the Ark of the Covenant was coming to the camp. And they said, woe to us, we're going to be destroyed because the Ark of the Covenant has a reputation. They know Yahweh, they didn't know so much, but they, they know the reputation of Yahweh. 
This Ark of the Covenant to them, and they understood that this Ark of the Covenant represents Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel. This is the God who destroyed the Egyptian kingdom. This is the God who sent plagues in Egypt. This is the God who split the Red Sea to make Israelites walk from Egypt to the wilderness. This is the God they know that provided for Israel for 40 years. This is the God who fought against Balaam, the sorcerer, in the wilderness. So they know his reputation. And what's going through their mind is, how come we have easily caught and captured the Ark of the Covenant? What happened? So maybe there's things running through their mind, and there's two things that are running through their mind. Either they have discovered accidentally the Achilles heel of Yahweh, God is a weakness, and they have discovered it, so they were able to capture the ark. Or that it was just a case of an absolute luck. They were just so lucky that they were able to capture the ark of the covenant. Because they know for a fact that Dagon, their god, was inferior to Yahweh. So, in fact, they did not bring their own idol to the camp because they know Yahweh is powerful. And yet, why, was, why were they able to capture the Ark of the Covenant? And so they're wondering, why is that? So what happened was they brought the Ark of the Covenant inside Dagon's temple in the, their capital, Ashod. Now, remember, these Philistines are polytheists. They believe in many gods. So putting the Ark of the Covenant Beside Dagon's temple, it's like collecting gods. Now they're more powerful. Now they have two gods on, on their hands that they can manipulate and command. But the idea is that God will teach them a lesson. The Philistines at this point will learn that Yahweh has no equal, that Yahweh is the only God. Just to say for us that Yahweh is king simply means there's no other God but Yahweh. There's no other God whom to be worshipped but Yahweh. This is exactly what Yahweh told the Israelites in the Ten Commandments. The very first one on top of the list, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, it says, You shall have no other gods before me. This is how God will teach the Philistines the lesson that the Israelites have forgotten time and time again. This is the emphasis of chapter 5. There's only one God, and his name is Yahweh. For the meantime, they did not understand that the Philistines still worship Dagon. Now, Dagon is a fertility deity. He's supposed to bless the people in the coastal areas. His name, Dag, means fish. Dagan means grain. So it's a combination of fish and grain. Uh, he's depicted as an idol made out of stone. Uh, and he's a half man, half fish. He's a merman. So there's mermaid, half woman, half fish. There's a merman, half, half man, half fish. So think about Neptune. Neptune was originally depicted as half man, half fish, the Greek god of the sea. Now, Dagon was half man, half fish. Now, imagine this. Dagon was in his temple, standing up. That's how he's worshipped. And the Ark of the Covenant was beside it in the temple. And so all the Philistines left that night. The following morning, they went back to the temple. And what they saw was very interesting. What they saw was, in the morning, Dagon's idol, or Dagon's image, was facing the floor, face down, as if worshipping the Ark of the Covenant. 
Could this be an accident? <laughs> well, it's made out of stone. If somebody pushed the idol of Dagon, it would have braked, but it did not. The Bible just simply said it was facing face down, as in prostrating towards the covenant of God. What's interesting here is that the Philistines didn't think much about what happened. It, for them, it's just, oh, maybe it's just an accident. But the thing is that uh, because they didn't think much about it, they put Dagon in its place, back in its place where he was standing. You see, this is like back in chapter 3. This is like Eli. When Samuel heard the voice of God the first time, he went to Eli and he said, did you call me? And Eli said, no, I did not call you. Eli did not recognize that God was talking to Samuel. The Philistines at this point did not recognize God was moving in the temple of Dagon. Who would have thought that this Ark of the Covenant really represents a real God, a God who's alive and is more powerful than Dagon? <clears throat> Anyone seen the night at the museum? Bed stiller. All right, cool. <laughs> this is nice. This is, uh, <clears throat> this is done at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. This is the story. Uh, it's a comedy fantasy story about when um, during nighttime, all the exhibits come alive. So picture that in mind, that what happens during the night in Dagon's temple between Dagon and the Ark of the Covenant comes alive. That's the idea here. What happened was they put Dagon back in its place and then they, they left. The following morning when they came back, this is not mere accident. They saw Dagon back in its place, prostrating before the Ark of the Covenant with head cut off and hands cut off. This is not an accident anymore. This is deliberate. They know what it means. Now, maybe for us, we may speculate that maybe somebody pushed, <laughs> you know, trying to sabotage Dagon. Uh, he doesn't want Dagon anymore. He wants to switch his allegiance to the Ark of the Covenant, so he pushed the idol in a brick. But not so, because the narrator of the Bible was very explicit when he said the, the head was cut off and the hands were cut off as well. The word that was used was not broken. The word that was used was cut off. It means it was deliberate. I was reading this, this commentary written by a Japanese scholar named David Tsumura. He said that what happened to Dagon was a mirror of a common wartime practice of collecting the hands and heads of fallen kings. So in, during that time, when they go to war, what they do for defeated kings, they cut off their hands and their heads as trophies. This is what exactly happened to Dagon. This is exactly, if you read further in the story, this is what David will do to Goliath once Goliath fell dead on the floor. David will go to the field and chop off his head. That's still in 1 Samuel. What's interesting also is that the first king Saul before David, when he was caught by the Philistines and he was caught dead, the Philistines chopped off his head and hanged it in the temple of Dagon. Interesting. So they understood, the Philistines understood, that what happened to Dagon was deliberate and it was done by God himself, Yahweh. That means that night, Dagon and Yahweh fought 
and Dagon lost. This is a clear, clear message that Yahweh alone is God. I want to slow down a little bit here because I want us to think what this really means. Normally, when we say God speaks to us, it's like, you know, the Samuel incident. There's a, an audible voice, a baritone voice, like Norbert. <laughs> I can't imagine at night I'm alone and somebody will say, Norbert, okay, that's scary. But, but when we say, when God speaks, what comes to mind is that God speaks audibly. But have you ever thought of the possibility that God may be talking to you in series of events? Like in, with the Philistines, God was talking to them with what happened to Dagon in a series of events. Not audible, but through series of events. Little things that are happening in our life. It may be random, it may be unrelated and insignificant. Nevertheless, God may be talking to you in series of events. And in that event, or in those events, God may be telling you something. I say that because right after the incident at the temple of Dagon comes a sobering statement that encapsulates the whole story in chapter 5. You'll find that in verse 6. It says, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashod and its territory. They cannot say God was absent. They cannot be atheists at this point. Because it was very clear the hand of the Lord was present with them. Could it be possible in the same way that when bad things happen to us, not exclusively, that maybe God is telling us something, that maybe God is trying to catch our attention, to help us see that there's something that He wants us to know. Now, when you read this normally, we tend to focus on the affliction and the tumors more than the phrase, the hand of Yahweh was heavy on them, because we get distracted by the gravity of the events more than the reason why things happen to us. So think about it. When we encounter a tragedy in life, any tragedy, that means it's going to break your heart, a loss of a loved one, uh, an accident, sickness, a loss of job, a struggle, an issue in the family. Our focus tends to be on the issues and how to solve them immediately. But we do not necessarily stop and think if God is trying to get our attention or if God is trying to tell us something. Because every event that happens in our lives, whether good or bad, can be used by God to communicate to us. Let me just ask you this personal question. Has anyone ever heard an audible voice of God talking to you? Now, I, I know some people who did had an experience, but it's not normative for people. Also in the Bible, it, not all of the people were, had an experience of that audible voice from God. But, but it seems like the Bible is trying to point us to this normative way of God speaking to us, not only through His Word, the Bible, but through the series of events that if we just stop and think and pause, we would be able to see these series of events are ways of God talking to me, telling me something. These are encounters with God. Let me ask you this. When are you most likely to remember God and really spend time with Him? When are you really sensitive to God speaking to you? 
when you're in Vegas having the time of your life or when you are having a toothache? Now, that sounds silly, but, you know, when are you most likely to learn that God alone can bless you and protect you and provide for you? Is it during the time when you have a high-paying job, a healthy body, plenty of time to pursue your hobbies, or you are in a hospital bed? See, the, the Israelites, in their story of the judges, they're most closest to God and sensitive to God's calling during the time of tragedies. Because during the time of tragedies, you are not distracted by anything. You are sensitive to what God is doing in your life. According to the story, while both hands and head of Dagon were cut off, Yahweh's hand was heavy against the Philistines. Now, let me just say something about here. Some people may say, Pastor, I don't worship idols. I don't have Dagon. I don't worship Dagon. But in some sense, they worship idols and act like they worship idols. How? When you recognize that your happiness is caused by a higher power over you, whether it's your guardian angel or your deceased parents, or you're simply saying the universe is conspiring to bring about the good things in your life, that's called idolatry. Because idolatry is basically when praise and glory that properly belongs to God is attributed to something else or to someone else, that is idolatry. If what happened to you and the cause of your happiness is attributed to a guardian angel, I did not, I did not meet an accident today because my guardian angel was busy protecting me. That's idolatry. Now, some people believe that their parents, their deceased parents, uh, watch over them. The Bible does not teach that. If we do that, we're attributing the goodness and the blessings of God to someone else or something else, that could be idolatry. Why? Because angels are not God. They don't have the power unless God told them to do so. Our parents, even though we love them, they don't have the power as well to do that. See, no matter how we are so connected with the disciples of Jesus, they're the saints of the Bible, Peter, James, and John. No matter how closest Mama Mary and Papa Joseph to Jesus, they do not have the ability to protect you, provide you, and bless you. Do not be mad at me. I'm just telling the truth. See, Yahweh alone is God because He's the creator of all. That's the whole idea of the book of Samuel. Yahweh alone is king. This is an obvious message to Israel and the Philistines. And I believe this is God's message for us today. And what's that? There's but one God and no other. Exodus 20 verse 3. You shall have no other God before me. There's only one who is in charge of the world. There's only one who directs the future of the world. And that is God. This God... The Bible calls him the one who is, who was, who is to come. It's a fancy word for saying God is eternal. He doesn't have a beginning and he doesn't die. Now, every other creature has a beginning and we die. Now, angels do not die, but they have a beginning. Humans have beginning and they have ending. We die. The world, the universe has a beginning. In fact, it will be renewed at the end of Revelation chapter 21. So it has an ending. Only God has no beginning and has no ending. That's why Jesus said in Revelation 21, He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. 
He doesn't die. He's eternal. The Bible also calls God as almighty. Almighty means when you look at the heavens, you go Romans chapter 1. When you look at the heavens and you see the stars and the enormity of the universe, when you stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, when you board the ship and you go to the Pacific Ocean, you will say there's God. God is undeniable because none of this will exist if not for God. That is what it means to give God all the glory and the praises because He alone is God. See, the Philistines did not think that God, Yahweh, has jurisdiction over their land. The whole idea of God coming to the Philistine land is to tell them, I have jurisdiction on this land. You were not just lucky that you captured the ark. I was here. I allowed it because I want to prove a point. I am Lord over the whole land. The Israelites, the Jews, say it, the olam, ha-olam, the whole world. Olam is the whole world. So whenever they pray, they say, Melech ha-olam. King of the whole world. And Yahweh was out to prove to the Philistines who he really is at this point. Now, the Bible said God afflicted them with tumors. And you may be thinking, what is this tumor all about? This is not the tumor that we know in the modern time. Like, it's going to be cancerous and then you're going to die after that. The tumor is more like boils or hemorrhoids. Some of the commentators say that it's, it looks like a a part of the body that's swelling, probably at the armpit or in the groin. And you imagine that. So you imagine Job at this point when the Bible said that Job had boils all over his body. Okay, imagine the Philistines having that boils over their body. It, it's painful. I mean, it, it has a pus, it's swelling, it's tender, it's inflamed. You think about Egypt, the sixth plague was about the boils. And so they knew immediately that what happened to them is not a mere accident. They can totally say, this happened because we know God did that, Yahweh did that to Egypt. So when they had that, when the Bible said, God afflicted them with tumors, they immediately know this was Exodus all over again. This was Egypt all over again. Now they're lucky because in Egypt there were 10 plagues. In the Philistine area, there's only one, and that's boils. But see, you cannot move, you cannot go to the market, you cannot work, you cannot even sleep if you have boils all over your body. I mean, one is enough. I mean, toothache is enough. Um, how about boils all over your body? No one was spared in this plague. So it was very clear to them. This is Egypt all over again. So what they did was they called for a convention, they gathered all the leaders. We're going to talk about this. We're going to put a solution. What are we going to do? You find that in verse 7 and verse 8. And when the men of Ashod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. It's very interesting here. They, they have articulated well that Yahweh is powerful than Dagon. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. Now, the first capital where the ark was brought was Ashod. So they realized we're almost dying here. Maybe we should bring it to the other city. There are only five cities of the Philistines. The second city was Gath. Uh, this is where 
this is the hometown of Goliath, Gath. And when it was brought to Gath, same thing happened. There was a plague, tumor spread, and the Gath people said, let's bring the ark somewhere else. And they brought it to Ekron, the third city. And the third city said, we're going to die, all of us. Let's put an end to this. What are we going to do? Maybe the best thing to do is to send the ark back to Israel so that God will stop devastating our land. Now, two things are important here. First, they have articulated fully what the, me- the meaning of the event. God's hand was against them and their God, Dagon. They understand that even though God was not speaking to them audibly, God was speaking to them through a series of events. They know God was not impressed. They know God was mad at them. They don't need any verbal, audible voice to tell them God is mad at you because you are doing this. They understood God was speaking to them. The voice of God was clear. God is sovereign. He's only God. And he's in charge of the whole land. There was a plague, both in Ashod, in Gath, and in Ekron. So the Philistines decided to move the ark from city to city, but the plague just spread out. So they decided to move the ark, and finally they said, we have to bring the ark back to the land of the Israelites. They recognized that God was serious about this one. See, I think sometimes we don't recognize that God is serious and we don't pay attention to God when things are going pretty well in our lives. But when we are unable to move, to walk, to eat, when things are uncomfortable, we tend to pause and think, maybe there's something happening. Maybe God is telling me something. Those were the only times when we really pause and think and listen to God. The question is, why do we have to wait for those times? When we can, we can sit now and pray now and listen to God's voice, whatever God is saying to us. The thing is, it only took two times to move the Ark of the Covenant from Dagon's temple. But it took them three cities to decide, or before they decided, to send the Ark back to the Israelites. So the question, I guess, is the same thing. How long will it take you to recognize that God is in charge? How long will it take you to realize that you cannot mess with God? What am I doing with my life right now? Am I following God? Am I following His precepts? Am I in His will? If not, how long will it take for you to realize before God brings the convincing to a different level? If you think about it, it took Eli the high priest three times before he realized God was talking to Samuel. It went back and forth. Samuel would go to Eli and he would say, did you call me? And Eli would say, I did not call you. Go back to sleep. Three times. And the third time, it's it's the only time when Eli realized God must be talking to this little boy. He, He became so so blind and deaf that he was not able to discern the voice of God. He was the prophet of God. He was the high priest. He was supposed to know when God was speaking. But it took him three times before he realized that God was talking to them. It took the army of the Israelites 
34,000 casualties before they even realized that they cannot use God as a means to an end. It took them two dead priests and one dead high priest and the capture of the Ark of the Covenant before they finally say, God is really, Yahweh is really king and there's no other. It took the Israelites one newborn child by the name of Ikavod to finally realize that the glory of God has departed from Israel. See, this is what happens when we frustrate God. The same thing when we frustrate the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, in the New Testament, the Bible said that when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what happened to God in the Old Testament. When God is grieved because people do not obey and follow God, He moves away. This is the same thing that David was trying to say. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Take not the joy of my salvation. This is what happened to Saul when he, was, when he became king. The Spirit of God, the anointing of God was taken away from him. And to him was given the torturing spirit. See, when God is not pleased, he will not stay. And this is what happened to Israel. God cannot be treated as a means to an end. If his own people will not honor him, he will find somewhere else that honor to be attributed somewhere else. I was trying to reflect on this, and I also asked myself, how long does it take for me to recognize that God was talking to me, revealing himself to me, even from a simple flu or a simple toothache? How long before I can recognize that my security is not based on my health insurance policies rather than on God? Or in the face of recession, how long will it take me to feel more secure? Is it because of my savings or my investment? Or I feel more secure because of God? Do I see myself like the Israelites? Do I use God, treat God only as a means to an end? Do I tell myself, I serve God, I'm involved in the ministry, I go to church, I give, I am faithful, and therefore I have earned points, and therefore God will make me win battles. Is that how we think? I was asking myself also, is that how I think? So look, at, look at verse 12. This is the last, last statement in chapter 5, verse 12. It says, The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. You remember this. When was the last time you read about the cry of the city went up to heaven? See, that phrase was first used in Exodus. This was the, the phrase that was used by the Israelites when they were asking God for help. The cry of the city went up to heaven. And so the narrator is giving us a hint. This is how you should read chapter 5 of the book of Samuel. This is another Exodus. Only at this time, it was the Philistines, the enemy, who were crying up to God. If this is another Egypt and this is another Exodus, we know what's, what end will be. This is just a repeat performance for God. Because in Egypt, God fought against the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh and he won. This is what will happen to the Philistines and they know that. See, remember Samson? Samson was in the book of Judges. He was a prophet of God. He was a judge, but he was promiscuous and he was unfaithful. 
Samson was the pitcher and the representative of all the nation of Israel during that time. And I keep thinking, although Samson had the anointing of God, Samson did not have the blessing of God. That's why he was captured by the enemy. See, when his hair was cut off, this is not Rapunzel. Rapunzel is, is a different uh, character. Uh, Rapunzel is a, a, a woman, right? This is Samson. Samson was a guy, his hair grew so long because the idea is that if he's a Nazarite vow, you cannot cut your hair, but he became so, so strong. He was given a power by God to be strong. But he fell in love with a Philistine woman by the name of Delilah. He almost married this girl. That's how God pictures the nation of Israel during that time. They were promiscuous with neighboring countries. They were worshiping idols. They were not faithful to their covenant. I think it's what we're doing also with our lives. It's also the story of our lives sometimes. Because sometimes, not just sometimes, we promise God to be faithful to Him the moment we, we bow our knees to Him. And yet, Many times we get distracted by shiny things in life. We get distracted by the constant pressure of keeping up with the Kardashians. So we want to buy things. We, we, get, we get distracted by a lot of things, not just buying things, not just material things. See, like a moth, we get captivated by the flame, and it's going to be too late to realize it's danger. We're going to die. Before we moved here, we lived in Arizona, and at that time in 2019, 2020, um, I was applying, in the process of applying as church planter for SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, and then pandemic hit. It was when the world was going crazy and people are dying and people want to stay indoors as much as possible, and we were all scared. It was a time of our lives. Even churches closed during the pandemic. But then I received the invitation to pastor a church here at Point of Grace. And if I would just have thought pragmatically, I would not have accepted the call. If I just do the math, I would say it's not worth it. To fly on a plane with a bunch of people who's positive, to come here and shake hands with people who are positive, to get sick and die, it's not worth it. So if I just do the math, I would say it's not worth it. It's pandemic. What people want to do is to stay at home and to be safe. But when I paused and I prayed and I sought God's will, it was clear, clear to me, we are being called to Florida. But my deal with God when I decided to go full-time in the ministry when I was still single is that if God will call me, God will call me anytime, anywhere. But since I'm married, I cannot just force my wife to go to Florida. So I had to ask God to convince my wife first. I have my kids and, and I have a family with me. If you asked me, did I hear any audible voice saying, Norbert, go to Florida? No, nothing. I did not dream of sunny beaches and clear skies. I did not dream or have vision of Hurricanes and people asking for help, I did not have those things. What I had was a clear impression that it was God's will for us to come here. 
And so with that call, even though it doesn't make sense, I drove 2,500 miles across seven states to come here alone. And when I got here, we had our first in-person worship service. <laughs> Very interesting. We had the first three senior citizens on the front row in our old church building. I mean, what, what's happening? What's going through our heads? There's pandemic and yet we were there. It's because we know, we are convinced that it was God's will for us to be there. See, I did not have to wait for God to give me three strikes, three series of event, events before I realized this is God's will for me. I don't want to be like the Philistines. I don't want to be like Eli. The first time God said, I'm up and about, I will follow the Lord. I think the same thing with, with us. We don't need much convincing. So when I was here, when people asked me, aren't you afraid of pandemic? I would say, of course I'm afraid. But because I believe that God called us here, because I know with that clear impression that God wants us here, and then we're here. I have shaken hands, hugged, met with, talked to, positive people since I got here. And the thing is, I never caught that virus until December last year. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why. But I believe that God will take care of me. That's why I was, I was not afraid to do that. So if you think about it, Eli took a while before he recognized the voice of God. The Israelites' army took a while before they recognized the voice of God. The Philistines had to live with plagues before they recognized the voice of God. Even Jonah. Jonah, was, Jonah heard the voice of God. But it took him a while. It took him so much convincing. A storm in the middle of the sea. A big, a huge whale swallowed him up. He was there three days and three nights. It took him that long to be convinced before he followed God. It took all the disciples of Jesus Christ three years. And three days where Jesus Christ was on the tomb. And one resurrection before they finally realized and believed who Jesus Christ really is. But it only took, watch this, it only took one single look from a centurion at the feet of the cross, looking at that helpless body of Jesus Christ, to be convinced who Jesus really is. That's what is said in Matthew 27, verse 54. When he looked at Jesus, he said, Truly, this was the Son of God. If I just pause and think and pray and see the series of events in my life, I would be able to recognize that God has been speaking to me all along. I want to pray for you. I want to lead you in prayer. Let this be a a sacred space for us to encounter God. So as you bow your, your heads and close your eyes, ask this question also. How long will it take me to recognize the voice of God? What will it take me to finally realize that God speaks through the seemingly random events in my life? What does God have to do to make me fall on my knees and acknowledge that He alone is God of my life, that He alone is the source of my protection and provision? 
What will it take to make me decide to move from being a spectator to becoming a participant in His kingdom? Heavenly Father, would you talk to us in your own special way, in your most personal way? It may not be an audible voice, but allow us to see what you're doing in our lives. Help us see through the series of events what you're doing to us so that we will heed your call. Father, we are beset with, with many struggles in life. We have many problems in life. So many things want to take away our attention from you. But Father, I pray that in your sovereign, sovereign will, you will allow us to get back in the fold, to really focus our eyes on you. Like the author of the book of Hebrews would say, there's so many weights around us but we have to focus our eyes on you, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, I pray that today, your church, we may be few today, but I pray that you will talk to us. To those of us who are not here, I pray that you will also extend your blessings to them. To those of us here who may not have yet decided to follow you, Father, I pray that you will be the one to convict them. To those of us here who would want to renew their commitment to you, to serve you in the most special way. Father, I pray that you will also talk to us. Talk to them. We want to be a church obedient to you, obedient to your will. Allow us to obey you and acknowledge that there is only one king. That's Yahweh, is our king. In the name of Jesus, amen.